This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. So Kyle, last week on the podcast, we discussed your analysis of how voters in the most populous versus the least populous counties in the South vote in presidential elections. Last week, James Brown's Night Train was the theme song for that episode and your analysis. The most important question I have for you today is whether you have any special theme song for this week's analysis of voting patterns in Southwest states. Uh, I mentioned Marty Robbins' uh, El Paso, um, which is a very old classic song. So that's the one I cited in the in the uh, in the in the uh, piece today. <laughs> but I guess I guess that's our that's our soundtrack for this week. So speaking of El Paso, why don't we start with Texas? You found in your analysis that voting trends in Texas look similar to that of Georgia in that some of the most populous counties in the state have moved towards the Democrats from 2012 to 2020, uh, while the bottom half remained fairly static. I wonder if you can talk about voting trends in Texas. Yeah, I mean, Texas um, has uh, become more competitive in recent years. You know, Texas was a, was a part of the old Democratic Solid South for a, for a long time, and then it became really one of the most Republican states in the country, at least for a time. Um, Mitt Romney won it by about 16 points in, in t- t- 2012, but that margin was down to about five and a half for Donald Trump in 2020. And, um, you know, the story has been just similar to, to the story in a lot of other places that the, the sort of the top half counties, the more populous places, um, which in Texas is, you know, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, uh, El Paso to a lesser degree, although El Paso is not included in the, the top half counties. It's actually seven counties, um, four in the, the Metroplex, and then uh, Travis where Austin is, uh, Behar where, where um, San Antonio is, and, and, and Harris where Houston is. Um, but those counties uh, collectively actually voted for Mitt Romney by one point in 2012. Um, Joe Biden won them by about 15. So a pretty clear swing toward the Democrats in those top half counties. Bottom half counties moved about three and a half points toward the Democrats in that time. But that that only reduced the Republican margin from about 30 points to about the uh, 26, 27. Um, and so the bottom half of Texas is still about 10 points to the right of the or is, is about 10 points more Republican than the top half is Democratic, if, if that makes sense. In Georgia, what we found was that the, the top half and the bottom half were basically exactly the same. So what needs to happen in Texas to be, become Georgia is that the top half have to get, has to get even bluer. And the Democrats have to at least maintain um, what they're doing in the, in the bottom half counties. So, you know, there's been movement toward Democrats in that state, but I would still categorize it as a Republican leaning state. So what do you think is contributing to the shifting voting patterns in Texas? I know there's been a large influx of people, especially from other states like California, for example. There seems to be a lot of economic development in this state. Um, what else might be driving the shifts in voting patterns there? Yeah, look, I think that, you know, that is a state where you just have a ton of growth, um, just like, you know, in like Metro Atlanta, for instance. I mean, Texas was the only state that added more than one new House member in the most recent census. Texas is up to 38 House members and 40 electoral votes. So, um, you know, it's been the second largest state for a while, but um, it is, uh, you know, and it's not it's not necessarily close to California. California still has 52 House members, but, you know, it's the, the gap between those two states, states is closing. And I think what you're seeing in, in Texas is similar to what you're seeing in some other places in that you do have kind of 
more kind of highly educated suburban areas moving toward the Democrats. I guess the difference in Texas is that it, between between Texas and Georgia is that you know with Georgia it's basically one huge mega mega city uh, you know a metropolitan area in um, Atlanta and that's just getting like bluer and bluer. Whereas Texas, you know, you do have a, a number of different metro areas that combine to make up the top half counties. And yes, there's democratic movement, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily at quite as stark collectively as it's been in Georgia. Um, you know, Georgia, I think, does have kind of more of those pockets of like, you know, uh, high educated white collar population. Um, so it's just again, it's just a little bit different. It's almost like Texas is kind of almost like a, um, uh, you know, it's 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 just a little bit different of a place than like Georgia or Virginia is, for instance, to name two states that have kind of clearly zoomed toward the Democrats. So, um, uh, and you know, they're also, as I noted in the piece, like. Yeah, there's been movement from 2012 to 2020, but some of it happened in 2016 and then kind of stalled out in 2020. So like Harris County, where Houston is, you know, Obama won it by a tenth of a point. Then Hillary Clinton won it by 12. Biden won it by 13. So, it, you know, it didn't actually move that much from 16 to 20. Whereas if you look at a lot of places in like Metro Atlanta, the, the, the movement is more consistently toward Democrats. And again, you do see that in some other parts of Texas. You know, you, you have also seen some Republicans doing better in certain parts of the state, including like South Texas. Um, so there's a lot going on under the hood in, in Texas. Texas is also not a it's not a particularly high turnout state. Um, uh, you know, turnout. I mean, turnout has been you know higher there, but but it's not like you know it's, it's it's a lot different than like some of the upper Midwest states that have like really high turnout in terms of eligible voters. I think Democrats probably feel like, hey, if we ever got the turnout we really wanted in that state, it would be it'd be a Democratic state. But you know saying that and that actually happening are two totally different things. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think we can just necessarily assume that Texas is going to be a true purple state in coming years, although certainly there's some trajectory that suggests that it might be. Uh, you just dogged my memory. You, you mentioned how Democrats paying attention to voter turnout in Texas might alter the landscape. And I'm not sure whether you recall, I'm sure you do, um, but in the 2016 campaign, Hillary Clinton's campaign had a heightened focus on, on Texas um, and, and some other states as well. But especially with Texas, that was a rare development for a Democratic presidential candidate at the time. Yeah, Clinton did have this sort of expand the map strategy when I think she and her team felt like that they were going to win and win comfortably. And then, you know, they 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 basically didn't win any state that, that Obama had had lost and they ended up losing, of course, several states that Obama had won. Um, you know, in 2020, you know, certainly Georgia and Arizona ended up flipping. I remember there was some buzz about Texas maybe voting for um, voting for Biden in the final days. But again, the margin ended up being about five and a half points, which is, you know, is certainly closer than it's been in Texas, but also is not super close the way that like you know, that, that like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Arizona and Georgia were. And, you know, I, I mean, look, I mean, I think that for Democrats to be sort of this dream to sort of dislodge Texas from the Republican coalition, because it's such a huge source of electoral votes, you know, 40 electoral votes that if it became a swing state, um, you know, it's hard, it was hard to imagine a, a credible Republican coalition without Texas. You know, you, you basically would have to, the Republicans would have to, um, you know, make up for that. They'd have to basically more consistently win like, the Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin combination um, in order to sort of make up for for losing Texas hypothetically, but um, but again, I think that, that maybe that's a conversation for like four eight years from now. Um, I don't necessarily think Texas would flip in twenty twenty four unless it's 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 you know it's a pretty big Democratic uh, presidential victory. Um, you know, I think we're assuming sort of a close election either way. 
um, uh, for, for, you know, for next year or so, um, you know, Texas, I think is now on the periphery of the competitive map. Again, we wouldn't have said that 10 years ago. Um, so I think it's getting there. It's just not, it's, I don't think it's quite there yet. One of the things that I observed in your two previous analyses of voting trends is that there were not any states where Biden had won the group of least populous counties, um, that so-called lower half. Um, you have finally found a state where this has happened, Colorado. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the shifts in Colorado that have propelled it to move more decisively towards Democrats, especially in the Trump era. Colorado uh, has, uh, you know, it's interesting in that you've got the bottom half and the top half counties and both the bottom half and the top half moved from Obama to Biden. Um, the, the top half moved more, but um, we actually had for the, for the first time in Colorado of all the states we've looked at, 18 so far, that the um, – uh, that that Biden actually won the bottom half counties, you know, the, the the counties outside the top half that cast the most votes. And so I thought that was pretty notable. And, you know, I sort of have, have lumped kind of Colorado and Virginia together in my mind um, in recent years in terms of states that, you know, the, the Democrats have really benefited from the Trump era realignment in those states. I think that's true, but Colorado has moved more toward Democrats, I think, in in, in recent years than Virginia has. And the fact that that those bottom half counties, um, which can you know contains like Boulder, where the University of Colorado is, super democratic county, a lot of the um, the ski uh, resort communities, which are very heavily democratic. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, some other, some other places in Colorado, but, um, but yeah, the, the shift toward, uh, toward Democrats in Colorado, particularly if you go like over the last like 20 years or so, you know, back when in the early two thousands, when Colorado was a, sort of a more reliably Republican state, um, the shift there has been pretty, pretty stark. And again, it's been stark in Virginia too. Um, just maybe a little, just, just a little bit, maybe of, of a more of a swing toward Democrats in, in Colorado than Virginia. So moving on to another state in the Southwest, you find that all three of the most populous counties in New Mexico are very clearly voting Democratic, and the state appears out of reach at this point for Republicans, at least at the presidential level. Can you talk about what's happening in New Mexico? Yeah, New Mexico, just like some of the other Western states, uh, you know, the population is pretty um, uh strongly, you know, rooted in, in just a kind of a handful of places, uh, yeah, Albuquerque and Santa Fe, which are, you know, adjacent, uh, counties. Um, and then, uh, Las Cruces, which is, uh, uh, just sort of outside El Paso on the other side of the Texas border. Um, and those places, you know, they were swing counties, at least, at least, uh, Bernalillo where, where Albuquer Albuquerque is and, and Dona Ana where, where uh, Las Cruces is, um, in the Bush years, um, they very clearly are not swing counties anymore. Uh, so, um, you know, th again, this has been, been a, uh, you know, another state that's shifted um, pretty strongly toward Democrats, at least over the course of the last 20 years. It's been pretty stable since about 2008. Um, uh, Biden won it by about 11 points. Obama won it by 10. You know, there's some movement toward Republicans in other parts of the state, but the populous areas have become pretty, pretty reliably Democratic. So, Kyle, the key swing states of Arizona and Nevada are both dominated by a single county that casts far more than half of the statewide vote. Maricopa, Arizona has about 61% of the vote share and Clark County has 69.2% of the vote share in Nevada. Maricopa voted slightly less Republican than Arizona as a whole in 2016 and it flipped to uh, Democratic in 2020. Clark County is still Democratic-leaning, but that is eroding. Can you speak more about what's happening in Arizona and Nevada? 
Yeah, I mean, Clark County in Nevada casts about 70% of the statewide vote, and that's where Las Vegas is. And so, you know, the the basically it's just a question of like how big is the Democratic margin in Clark. Um, another, you know, the 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 other r- remaining big source of votes in that state is Washoe County, where where Reno is. It's sort of a swing county that's maybe been leaning a little bit toward Democrats in recent years. And then you've got like another 12, 13% of the vote in the other remaining part of the state, which is all super duper Republican. Um, and, you know, Clark, it's it, it uh, you had double digit margins for Democrats there from 08 to 16, dipped a little under uh, into the single digits, so about nine and a half points in uh in, in 2020, and the city of Las Vegas itself um, has also gotten you know more competitive over time, you know less democratic leaning in that in that time period. And meanwhile, in Arizona, Maricopa County, where Phoenix is, makes up a little over 60 percent of the statewide vote. Uh, Maricopa was you know one of the the, the, the great big Republican counties across the whole country in terms of it, you know, being a, a giant population center that was very clearly Republican leaning. And um, it flipped to uh, uh, flipped to Biden in 2020 and the state went along with it. Um, I also found just sort of interestingly that um, this was the um, Maricopa was always more Republican than the state as a whole for its entire history until 2016. Uh, uh, Arizona started voting for president in 1912. And then, uh, Biden flipped Maricopa for the first time, one as a Democrat for the first time since Harry Truman in 1948, and that made the difference in, in the election. And so you can see this, you know, this sort of trend where Phoenix and Maricopa County are sort of getting bluer. Clark County is not quite as blue as it used to be in Nevada. And so you, because there's such huge components of the statewide vote, um, you can imagine a world in which, you know, Arizona kind of becomes a more democratic than Nevada. Maybe we have elections where Arizona votes blue and Nevada votes red for president. I guess it could come as soon as um, as 2024, maybe sometime in the future. But um, that does appear to be be the uh, the trend. I mean, if I were, you know, again, I think Republicans probably have a, a little bit better bet for the future in Nevada, maybe Democrats in Arizona. Um, you know, the, the Democrats did win both key Senate races in those states in 2022, although um, the Republicans flipped the governorship in Nevada, beat an incumbent, um, and uh, uh, Democrats flipped the governorship in Arizona in an open seat race. So, you know, two, um, two really important states to watch. Those are um, two of the seven states from 2020 that were decided by less than three points. Um, but again, they didn't fit quite well into this other half analysis because basically every other state, you could add up enough counties to get to like 51, 52 percent of the statewide vote just using the bigger counties. But but there, you know, Maricopa is like 60 percent and Clark is like 70 percent. So shifting focus a bit, we had comments come in on social media asking us to weigh in on Tennessee Republicans, supermajorities, expulsion of two black Democratic state legislators Justin Pearson and Justin Jones for bringing a protest against gun violence into the state legislature. Both have now been reappointed by their local councils. One of the things I wanted to comment on about this is that, you know, it's really just another example of our current state of <clears throat> hyperpartisanship and power grabs. Um, however, this, this really does seem pretty extraordinary um, for a party in power to do. I went and looked at Ballotpedia, which has a list. um, It has a historical list of expulsions of state elected officials since 1837. And, you know, they provide a list of why those state legislators had been expelled. 
And nothing really comes close to, close in that list of, of reasons um, to having a protest in the legislature. Um, there's only 20 states in the country that have ever expelled elected officials from their legislatures. Um, and and you know, in, in all of those cases, it's, it's primarily been for criminal conduct. So the case in Tennessee really does feel like um, an attack on democratic principles and norms. Yeah, I mean, usually, you know, it's, it's it, w- when these things happen, you know, particularly at the congressional level, it's because um, a member was, you know, committed a crime or something. I got to get expelled for it. I mean, um, you know, and like so, so for instance, you know, when like George Santos, okay, there was this, you know, when he got elected to Congress, and um, you know, right before he, you know, Congress was supposed to open, everything came out about how he had you know, basically made up his life, his life story. Um, at the time there was some thought, oh, well, should Congress like not allow him to take a seat or something like that? And the general thought was that if, if Congress tried to do that, Santos probably would have a decent case to say, Hey, you're not allowed to do that. You know, I, I'm not breaking any of the qualifications for being in office. However, if Santos is eventually convicted of something or pleads guilty to something, that might then be the time for Congress to consider expelling him if he doesn't resign. Here in Tennessee, you know, again, this is a state legislative question, but in Tennessee, I think you had a situation where you had these Democratic lawmakers, you know, break the decorum of the chamber, but probably not in a way that merited being expelled. I mean, it seemed like a pretty dramatic um, escalation to do that. Um, you know, there are ways that that if if um, there are members who are not, you know, again, respecting the decorum of the chamber, the rules of the chamber, you know, there are ways to reprimand that reprimand them, which I think arguably would have been appropriate in this situation. Um, but, you know, exp- expulsion seemed like going really, really far. And I think that's what the reaction has been um, that. And, and, you know, we, we did see like if if these members had committed crimes, you wouldn't see. The local authorities in Memphis and Nashville immediately reinstating them to their posts because um, they would be, you know, tarnished and embarrassed for the the crimes they'd committed or whatever. But this is a situation where I just think the the um, the Republican supermajority there just sort of went too far. You know, we did also have another expulsion of a, a state house member in Arizona recently, which was actually kind of along the same line. I mean, it was a diff- different situation, but um, and that's a, this situation where, where there's a small Republican majority in the state house there, and they expelled a member for um, essentially uh, uh, basically bringing someone who was this, like election denier to testify, who was making up these kind of crazy theories about and, and kind of it's basically insulting uh, members of the legislature or, or you know other elected officials and also didn't didn't seem to tell the truth about her involvement in that testimony. I also sort of get the sense that in this instance and also in Tennessee that the expelled members were sort of a thorn in the side of leadership and or of the you know the, the leadership of the body and, and therefore they're expelled. And I think that may be going, you know, I don't I, I don't even know if in the Arizona case it was necessarily I mean, it's not for me to say whether it was justified or not, um, but it's interesting that it was a bipartisan vote in Arizona and the Republicans in control expelled a fellow Republican. Um, the Tennessee situation is is maybe easier to understand just in the sense that it was like Republican supermajority is upset with these actions taken by these Democratic lawmakers. But um, so, you know, this that's just been, been sort of in the news lately. And, and uh, I think it's pretty interesting. But Carrie, to your point, um, you know, again, usually when you think about expulsion, you think like, hey, 
here's a person who clearly has to resign because they committed some sort of crime or something. They haven't done that yet, so therefore we have to we have to actually kick them out. This is these situations both seem a little bit different than that. In terms of thinking about broader trends and the context in which this is occurring, um, I read a good article by Sharon Eiffel. Um, it was actually written in March, and she actually, um, you know, wrote about a broader trend to remove powers from elected representatives, especially uh, Republican legislators attempting to remove powers from progressive prosecutors who are attempting to implement criminal justice reforms. Um, That's happened in Florida and Missouri. And there have also been bills filed in more than a dozen states to remove power from reform-minded prosecutors. I've also talked about this on the podcast in the past, but some of the ways contests between state legislators and Supreme Courts, um, you know, that's also led to some attempts to alter the powers of different branches of of government within the states. Um, In Montana right now, Republican legislators there are trying to reshape the Supreme Court in a way that would exclude more ideologically liberal justices. and North Carolina, it's, you know, it's a different situation there. And it's, it's really been, you know, political on, on, on both sides in, in, in North Carolina. In that case, um, a Democratic-leaning Supreme Court quickly issued rulings before it lost power in December to a Republican-leaning Supreme Court. And the now Republican-leaning Supreme Court uh, is going to rehear cases on redistricting voting rights and potentially even reproductive rights. So, you know, I I think it's worth talking about how these power plays, um, really by any party, affect democracy writ large. um, Whether we can respect minority rights um, and, and whether we can come to power sharing agreements, um, uh, you know, at, especially at the state and local level where, you know, so many issues are, are decided by state and local governments. I also kind of find it ironic that President Biden is over in Ireland this week, you know, trying to get folks to support the power sharing government there. Um, but really, we have a lot of work to do here in the United States to support power sharing. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think that part of it, too, is that so many states have become kind of like landslides for one part or the other. And then you've got, you know, gerrymandering and other things. But, you know, it's not like in Tennessee, if the state wasn't gerrymandered, that, you know, Democrats would be competing for the state legislative majorities. Um, however, maybe, you know, maybe the, the Republican majority would be smaller, it wouldn't be a supermajority, etc. Um, but, you know, you do have situations, you know, there is there uh, of, of basically, you know, kind of trying to change the rules, basically, like, um, there's an instance on the on the Democratic side from last year when Kathy Hochul became the governor of New York that uh, her pick to be her lieutenant governor um, had basically some huge ethical problems. Um, and so uh, she wanted to replace him with Antonio Delgado as a running mate, former House member who's now lieutenant governor. And um, they had to change the law basically because in, to get off the ballot in New York, it has to be um, – prior to that, you you know, you had to be basically – 
th- it was very hard to get off the ballot there. I forget the specifics, but you know they changed the the rules there, and and I just remember there, there was a lot of you know grumbling from the Republicans about it, and even from some Democrats saying like, what do we you know, what are we doing here? Legislative majorities, you know, when they have the power to do something, they 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 will sometimes do it, but maybe it's not always the most appropriate thing to do. Um, but it also speaks to our system that there are a lot of things that we think of as guardrails that are not really hard guardrails, you know, that 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 are are like norms as opposed to actual prohibitions. And so, like, you know, just just it's you know, just like pulling another example out, like when Antonin Scalia died, and um, you know. President Obama tried to appoint Merrick Garland to replace him. And, you know, Senate Republicans who were in the majority, they said, hey, we're just not going to have a hearing on this person. We're just going to keep the seat open. And like, on one hand, you could say, and a a lot of Democrats were outraged about that, which, you know, I understand why they were. But at the same time, like there was nothing that was really forcing the Senate Republicans to have a, you know, they could keep the seat open indefinitely, potentially. And so, you know, it's like if there aren't specific laws or rules in place that say, hey, when a nominee is announced, you have to have a hearing within 60 days or whatever, and you have to have a vote within 120 days or whatever. I'm just making this stuff up. If those things don't exist, then what are the guardrails? There aren't really any guardrails. Um, and so, you know, you've got, you know, norms sometimes would keep people in line, but line, but um, you could just sort of blow past the norms if you want to, if you have the power to, and there aren't specific legal restrictions on doing that. So, Kyle, I thought we should end this week with just a brief conversation about the 2024 presidential contest. Most notably this week on April 12th, Republican Senator Tim Scott announced that he has taken a significant step toward a presidential bid, launching an exploratory committee that would allow him to raise money um, and and those funds could be transferred to an official presidential campaign uh, if he decides to do so. Senator Scott is the only black Republican currently in the United States Senate. Um, and he noted on the date that he he launched this exploratory video um, that it was also the, the same day that marked the beginning of the Civil War at Fort Sumter in South Carolina. Uh, looking at morning consult uh, tracking this week of the Republican primary, You know, it remains uh, pretty much where it was before when we've talked. Um, Donald Trump is is still leading the field with 56 percent among respondents. Um, Ron DeSantis follows with 23 percent. Mike Pence, 7 percent. Nikki Haley, 4 percent. Liz Cheney, who has not indicated one way or the other what she plans to do, um, is coming in at 3 percent. Tim Scott is with a bunch of others at the 1 percent. Um, uh, ranking. So I wonder what your thoughts are on the viability of Senator Scott's presidential bid. Uh, Look, I mean, I think he would need, you know, DeSantis to sort of fall off or maybe not run. And then maybe he could position himself as an alternative to to Trump. You know, I mean, the thing you you just mentioned those polls, I mean, you know, generally speaking, Trump's been doing a little bit better lately. DeSantis has been doing a little bit worse, but they still tend to split like 75, 80% of the vote. So if that's happening between two candidates, there's not a whole lot of room for anybody else. But, um, you know, I think you've, you've got some, you know, you've got more Republicans entering the, the race. I'm sure there'll be more after Tim Scott. And they must think that, you know, DeSantis will fall off or Trump will fall off, that there's actually some desire for another candidate and that they can fill that, um, they can fill that role. I do, I do think that, that, you know, Trump probably feels like, 
it's good for him to have the the non-Trump vote splintered as much as possible. So from his perspective, probably the you know the the, the more the merrier. Um, you know, I think Scott has. Um, uh, got a pretty good reputation uh, amongst Republicans. Um, is someone who I think is um, pretty well respected. But again, all sorts of well respected, accomplished people run for president on both sides every four years, and many of them just never, never register. So you know, your initial, the initial handicap almost for anyone would be to say, this person's not going to be the nominee because <laughs> there's only going to be one, um, and it's certainly he's not starting as some sort of front runner or anything. But you know, we'll see how this thing goes. These, um, these races sometimes have a lot of twists and turns. Well, Kyle, it's been wonderful talking politics with you this week as always. Thank you for your insightful analysis and we'll talk again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Kara. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Lily. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Bays. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at center number four politics until next time. 